Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Snyder, Assistant Professor of Psychology and member of the Center for Brain Health at the University of British Columbia. Jason's research focuses on neurogenesis and specifically how hippocampal neurogenesis across the lifespan regulates memory, decision-making, and stress-related behaviors. His research uses transgenic techniques, immunohistochemistry, electrophysiology to quantify neurogenesis, understand the circuit mechanisms by which new neurons regulate behavior. Beyond neurogenesis, Jason's lab is interested in how neurons throughout the dentate gyrus, hippocampus, and related structures interact to guide behavior. Today, we will be speaking with Jason about his article, Recalibrating the Relevance of Adult Neurogenesis, that appeared in Trends in Neuroscience early this year, some of his other recent papers on the topic. Welcome to Manifold, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. So I think we all grew up with the general idea that you don't grow new neurons. And we were all counseled as kids, poorly informally, that there are many things you could do to kill your brain cells, like drinking and um, staying up way too late. But there's nothing you could do to actually grow new neurons. And uh, this dogma had become extremely widely held. In fact, I believe it was held for all animals, all mammals, mammalian species when we were growing up. It was thought that you know, many parts of our body uh, regularly generate new cells, whether it's uh, skin or the blood, but there's something special about brain cells that made this impossible. Corey, um, our, our guest is much younger than we are. You got to remember we're old guys now. So I'm not sure he grew up with that dogma. You and I definitely were fed that dogma, which it, I never believed. It's sticking in my head, but I yeah, try but, to repress our but, age in this topic. Uh, yes. Well, it's good. It's good for us not to come to grips with how old we are. But let's ask him whether he was also force fed that dogma when he was a young person. I grew up uh, just grew up, in, you know, grew up in the academic sense in graduate school, just as this dogma was being overturned. So it was kind of an exciting time because there were only, uh, you know, a dozen papers saying that the adult brain could produce new cells. And every time something came out, you knew about it and you knew the literature. And I mean, at this point, I feel like that's an advantage because it's helped me totally stay on track of, of the literature. But um, in my lab, obviously, we, we were studying this, so we believed in it, and it, it wasn't a dogma to me, but um, we felt the impact because it was still really hard just to get funding to study this. Um, and, and that, you know, that anxiety about, uh, will we be able to publish our paper because people still don't believe it? That was still in the air because this was like 2001, I think was my first publication on this topic and, uh, it still wasn't accepted. So I could definitely appreciate that this was, uh, this had been a problem, right? And it still was it, maybe in the hippocampus, people were starting to appreciate neurogenesis was happening. Um, but at that time there were other studies saying, well, maybe it's happening in other parts of the brain. And that was uh, really uh, opposed uh, strongly. So the, the dogma was still there. What was the change that allowed people to see that neurogenesis was possibly occurring? Were there new techniques developed? Yeah, um, it was, I think many things came together. I mean, in the background, there were decades of research just on the brain's ability to change in general that I think set the stage for uh, this discovery of this really the rediscovery of neurogenesis 
Um, you know, you, you, you had the patient, the famous patient HM, who was uh, discovered in the, in the 60s when his hippocampus was removed. Uh, he could recall old memories, but he couldn't form new memories. And so, you know, it became clear with that discovery and with subsequent discoveries that connections between neurons strengthen and can change. And that's um, happening in the same region that is required for memory. It, it gave birth to this um, real idea that this, this region where neurogenesis is happening, the hippocampus, is uh, capable of changing structurally, functionally, and then that may underlie, you know, behavioral change. And so I, I think, you know, but that, that, that happened, that was known and that progressed over decades. You know, so that was 60s, 70s, 80s, and then 90s is when neurogenesis started to become um, a topic. And so it, it took a while. Um, and it really was, you know, there were signs that neurogenesis happened earlier in the 60s. People could see what looked to be my, like mitotic cells, um, but they didn't have unambiguous verification that these were neurons. They could be glial cells, which at the time nobody cared about. I've listened to some of your earlier podcasts. You've talked about this, another dogma that the brain is only composed of one important cell type, neurons. Uh, and so they thought, well, maybe these are just, you know, glial cells that are being born. How do we know that they're neurons, even though they, the shape maybe might suggest so? But in the 90s, new microscopes, antibodies that could target neurons and not glia, that, that those sorts of uh, techniques became available to, to identify a cell unambiguously as a birth-dated neuron and, and, and maybe forming connections in the brain. And so that was happening after this, in this background of knowing that the brain could change structurally. Those kind of things, I think, came together to allow can, it to begin to be accepted. Can we go one step even further back, which is that I recall being told with high confidence, like in textbooks, and I think even once when I was an undergrad at Caltech by a famous neuroscientist, that it was known that we couldn't grow new brain cells or new neurons. And I, I just couldn't believe that at the time, this was the 80s, I, just, I actually questioned this guy pretty aggressively for an under, undergrad. I said, well, how do you know that? And I just didn't quite understand why the field, if there's such a thing, could come to a high confidence belief uh, about this specific question. So what, what's the prehistory for how that happened? Yeah, I think people just hadn't looked close enough, but there was some evidence that, I mean, clearly the brain largely formed prenatally and around the time of birth. So early neuroanatomists like Ramon and Cajal were characterizing the development of the nervous system. They, they knew that most cells are born when you're an infant or, you know, in the womb. You know, if 99% of them are born then, then they, they either couldn't detect the ones that were added later, didn't think that they were significant enough. And so I think that just led to this view that was perpetuated. And like many things, these certain, certain ideas get perpetuated without really being ever tested. And I think the field is still like that. We'll probably get into it later. There's whole, whole territories of relevant research related to this that haven't been addressed. People think it's a certain way, but I think we still need to do the experiments to, to test it. So... I think it was this early neuroanatomist and then, um, and then people who, who characterize the development of the brain um, coming to these conclusions that it is born according to a timetable in early development, and, and that's it, without really looking hard enough at the adult brain. And when you look when hard your, enough, At what age does your brain reach its full size? Well, most of the neurons are born by the time of birth, but they continue to myelinate and they continue to grow in size for, in humans at least, you know, many years after, like, you know, until childhood or so. So 
know, maybe okay. by the time you're 10, it's 20. <laughs> and a lot of neural development is actually not the growth of cells, so the pruning of connections that tends to occur in the first few years of life. And the lack of pruning has been linked to autism. I think there is a complexity in neuroscience that doesn't exist in other areas of medicine. And that's that you can open up the human body and we do for various reasons and you can see healing in almost every other part of your, your body. And you just couldn't do this in the case of humans uh, in their brain. Yeah. And so I, I, it's, it's, it's weird. This a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily evidence for the negative, right? But people took it as in fact, yeah. they didn't seem to see these things. They made the jump saying that's compelling evidence that was, does not occur. Yeah. In fact, probably simply didn't have the techniques. I think some of the techniques that were developed in the 90s involved the ability to label mitotic cells, uh, label cells by the stage of development. And as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, these studies are done, at least in humans, the later ones, after death, and often in the case of primates, and you sort of looking back retrospectively rather than watching cells sort of develop kind of in vivo. Yeah, I totally get why it's a hard question to answer. And I'm not complaining like if I had gone to that freshman neuroscience seminar in 1983 or whatever, and the guy said, well, we don't actually know. There doesn't seem to be a lot of growth, but we're not sure. I would have been 100% satisfied with the answer. But instead, I got some kind of categorical answer, and I just didn't believe they knew the answer. Um, and then it led me to question the cognitive ability of people to like reason. So I was like, what, how, what is the reasoning? You have a strong belief. How did you arrive at that belief? And it really disturbed me. Maybe he was teaching a class. And now that I've been teaching a class, I've learned that when you reveal the complexities and that you don't know the answer to something, the students sometimes get confused and then they get upset, right? So. Yeah, but this is Caltech. The students were much smarter than this professor. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I mean, there's a tendency, I think, human beings to think in a bivalent way. Things are either true or false. People are not very good with professors of advanced science at top yeah, universities. Yeah, I it's, think so. Look, it, it, it's easier to publish things when you state categorical findings, and that kind of gets absorbed into the literature. People talk in that way. It's just a natural human tendency. You really have to restrict yourself. We, we're not very good at processing probabilities. It's very hard for us to categorize them. Yeah. So you can't put a number on these things. I do think it, as a scientist, it's part of your professional skill to be able to characterize strength of belief, uncertainties, because that's, that's very integral to what we do as scientists. But it's hard. You can't put a number on the probability that there were new neurons, right? We say we may not be totally certain that there weren't any back then, but no one could put a number on it. No, we don't have to have a number, but you could say we're not sure, but there, we can put an upper bound on the rate at which it's happening because we would have detected it if it were happening at that more, at faster rate. Um, you know, that kind of answer is what you're looking for, I think. I mean, that's what a physicist Yeah, I think say. those upper bounds are easy to, to uh, calculate in a field like physics, which are fairly simple systems. Um, but since those findings, right, and this is probably what we're going to talk to Jason about, things have become messy again, and they did over the past 20 years. Uh, and so once the initial finding was established that there looked like there were new neurons, there now have been some reversals back and forth and the field looks much more complicated than that we are once wrong about there being new neurons and there are. Now it's, they seem, appear to be under certain circumstances. So Jason, can you talk a little bit about what you reviewed in your, your yeah. article? Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I, th I think it's still worth you know mentioning before this latest controversy, which is about whether it's really happening in humans. Um, you know, it, it, sure, in the in the late '90s, you know, finally someone did use the technique used in animals, where you can um, 
inject an exogenous uh, chemical that labels the DNA and can be used to, to uh, mitotic, yeah, identify a mitotic cell. A cell that was born, this, this molecule called BRDU, was used in cancer patients to label cells. And then in the postmortem tissue, they could verify this using techniques used in, in animals that have tried and true show that these new neurons were indeed added, added in humans. And so that was- but Was BRD uh, used in the 1998 paper by Erickson? Is that- Yeah, yeah that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Can you, can you just take a minute to describe that technique in some detail? Yeah, yeah so you know, uh, DNA is composed of uh, four bases, uh, adenine, thymidine, guanine, and cytosine, ATCG. And when you inject an analog of one of these, uh, a thymidine analog, bromodeoxyuridine, into the bloodstream, it gets taken up by cells anywhere in the body. And then they synthesize DNA with BRDU instead of with thymidine. And you can go back at a later date um, and look at the postmortem tissue and use antibodies that specifically target the BRDU. And you attach a fluorescent tag to those antibodies, and then under the microscope, you can see where are those cells that were born when we injected BRDU. And you can look anywhere in the body, see where they, where they migrated to, and you can um, look, use other antibodies to say, do they also express proteins that are only found in neurons? And so if you've got a cell that has both BRDU in it and a neuronal specific protein, then you could say this was a neuron that was born on that day we injected it. It became a neuron, and we can quantify them. Um, and this was used to basically stage the progression of the cancer because cancer cells are also dividing and will take up the BRU. Um, so the, the byproduct was that we had these extremely valuable, useful brains that could then be used to quantify neurogenesis as well. Now, that was then uh, validated and, and extended using other endogenous markers that are present in neurons. It was, there was a study that actually used carbon dating to estimate the number of uh, cells that were added at different stages of life because uh, during the bomb testing, there was radioactive carbon that was taken up by, by dividing cells. And as that dissipated, uh, later born cells would be taking up less radioactive carbon. So they could kind of differentiate cells that were born at different stages of life. So there are many of these techniques that have been used that really cemented the idea, it made me believe, yeah, okay, there's neurogenesis happening in humans. In the side, there were these other controversies about neurogenesis happening in other brain regions. So those are, those are still, that's a whole other ballgame. But it, it kind of contributed to the general sense of uh, like controversy and unease that this field has felt over the years. And so what we all kind of could at least rest assured about, you know, rest on, was that in the hippocampus, new neurons are added. That's what everybody believed. In every species we've examined, except maybe bats, and I think like dolphins or something, <laughs> uh, possibly, uh, it seemed like they're added to every species, including humans. Um, and so um, it changed over the course of a decade from, a, from something that people didn't believe in to something that we're going full force and investigating. And then a study comes out, and it always depends where a study's published uh, in terms of how much attention it gets. Uh, and it was published in a very high profile journal, Nature, and said that humans don't have neurogenesis in the hippocampus after childhood. So this, was, this was last year, right? This was last year, 28, early 2018, I think, yeah. Can you describe that study? And so there, um, uh, this was by uh, Arturo Alvarez Boya and, and, and his lab at UCSF. They had, you know, about 60 different uh, brains from people of all ages, spanning prenatally through to old age, 
and they didn't have beer to you to label their cells, which is kind of like the gold standard. But what they used, um, they used antibodies against proteins that are known to be expressed in newborn neurons in, in animals. So they, they did staining for these proteins, histological staining, and they quantified the number of immature cells, immature cells of unknown exact age, but presumably, you know, adult born immature cells, and they, or recently born, I should say, um, and they quantified throughout the lifespan and, and found that they were um, uh, present embryonically, early postnatal period, but rarely, if ever, found after the age of, I think, 13 was their oldest subject. And they had a lot of controls. They, their staining quality, their pictures were quite good, and the lab is very reputable. I mean, they, they do great, careful work. Sometimes it's so careful, like extremely stringent criteria, which, you know, on one hand, of course, is, is good. If, you, if, you, if they're detecting them, you know it's real, but if they're not detecting them or they're just failing to, to capture it. But they had some positive controls in that they, they could see plenty of neurogenesis in the children. And so that was, to me, a real strength. that They could find it when it was there in some cases, but not others. Now, maybe that's easier to detect in children. Like everything is softer and squishier and the antibodies may be able to detect better in the children. But that was, uh, you know, so people have their reservations about this study for many reasons, but it, it, really, it really made everybody stop and question the field, I think, including me. So your paper, I think, is then kind of analyzing findings across the field over the past 20 years, across different animals, trying to sort out what's going on. Yeah, I, neurogenesis happens. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was trying to think about what made me start writing this paper. And I, I think what I end up doing when something like this happens, because they, they had numbers, at least. It wasn't just pictures of neurons. They actually quantified um, cell proliferation and immature cell numbers. And um, so I think I, I realized, well, there are other studies that have looked at neurogenesis in humans. And, and they cited a few papers that I, I hadn't read. So I thought, well, let me look at what they found, too. And I found every single paper that looked at cell proliferation in the dentate gyrus, this subregion of the hippocampus. And, I, and they, the cool thing was all of these studies in humans used essentially the same kinds of methods. They found a, a marker that's a protein that's expressed in mitotic cells and they use antibodies to detect it. So they were looking at proliferation and they had a common method, proliferation at the time of death essentially. And because it's humans, uh, you don't have any control about the age of your subjects. You know, they die and, and they do or do not donate the brain. So you've got a lot of young subjects. You've got a lot of children, adolescents. You've got a lot of people in old age. And, and so then it's just kind of messy to put it all together. So, okay, well, let's just put it together in time. And we actually have better data on humans, I think, neurogenesis than most animal studies where everything's really well controlled. We know less about the early development of this structure in terms of the quantitative uh, nature. And it all seemed to come together to me, like there's a lot of neurogenesis in development, as we should know and expect, and it goes down rapidly. And then, uh, well, we need to compare this to animals. Like, well, I think you know, we know neurogenesis goes down to animals with age two, but I mean, the, the conflict in everybody's mind was neurogenesis is not happening in humans, uh, but it is happening in animals. Like, what, how do we reconcile this? And whereas in humans, people are studying all ages, uh, I knew in animals, for lots of practical reasons and financial reasons and whatever, you just, you tend to study young adults. 
And so when I looked at the data there too, it, it didn't look that different from humans. Humans are not that different from animals. By mid-age, neurogenesis is very low. Some would say negligible. So just says, what it, you're, you're, you look back and you found the studies were pretty heterogeneous, especially as regards the age of the subjects, right? Yeah. Studies across humans and animals, but the animal studies are focused on young animals, and that's where you're seeing neurogenesis. And humans, the human studies were not adequately taking that into account, you think? I think, I think people weren't taking into account. The reason why it's so surprising is that everybody is studying um, what I, you know, animals that are about two months of age and calling them adults. And not animals, I mean rodents. And you know, at that point, they become sexually mature, but they're still, they're still very young. You know? they're, like, they're almost like children or teenagers. Uh, they mature, they, they appear mature, but they're not totally mature. So this is where all of our understanding about adult neurogenesis comes from, is animals that are um, barely adults, or in some cases, definitely not adults. And, and so everybody had this impression that it's happening. And then a lot of our understanding from humans, of course, also comes from whatever subjects you get, which are often depressed patients or, or older individuals. And so these are adults who are well beyond that window when neurogenesis was still high. I think what became apparent is we're, we're comparing uh, adults at the later stage of their life when neurogenesis is very low to um, rodents that are very young. And there appears to be this mismatch and people don't believe that neurogenesis might in fact be low for much of our adult lives, but it actually makes sense when you compare it to older rodents too, I think. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, it seems like in the case of rodents, there's immediate motivation to do, for example, one-year-old rodents, just go out and immediately run these same experiments on... No, they're too old. <laughs> they're too old? I mean... I, it, that, that'd be great, a great idea. But from the perspective of a master's student that needs to get a thesis, uh, that's, that's like the duration, you know. These oh, are, you mean you can't buy... I mean, since you're only interested in whether neurogenesis is happening, couldn't you just go down the hall and get somebody else's mice that happen to be a year old and use them? Or Most people across neuroscience don't use mice that old. Um, you know, every electrophysiologist tends to study animals that are two or three weeks old. They maybe just open their eyes. It's very easy to do these electrical recordings in the young brain because it's healthier and it's more robust and viable. Um, no, but yeah, most of your how colleagues about, are not. How about people who study disease? Surely they're interested in old mice. There are some, some people who study aging, and so they, they do it. Yeah. yeah, but if you want to get an old animal, you, you often have to order a, a, a former breeder, just a rodent that was used to produce experimental animals. And now right. it's done breeding. And of course, now it's a it was an animal that was breeding, so it's very different than the right. traditional uh, model, which is a bit abnormal because it's never bred in its life. Um, so it's... Uh, they're more expensive too, of course, when they're older. So the the second question I had is, I wasn't quite clear what you were saying about the actual status of the evidence for adult humans or humans that are, you know, uh, out of childhood. So yeah. the new paper claims not to detect any evidence for neurogenesis in humans in adulthood. Is that the That's nature? Right. Paper? Okay, yeah. and. But of course, uh, being an actual quantitative scientist, there's no such thing as evidence against, you know, evidence that it's zero. It's just an upper bound yeah. on the rate. Otherwise, yeah. they would have detected something. The title of paper is undetectable. Yes. It's so undetectable. then, but then there's, they, they have to be able to estimate what, at what rate they would have detected it had it been there. So then you get a quantitative upper bound. That's 
right? Yeah, they, they didn't detect, they didn't, they didn't uh, try to quantify that or state that, yeah. Uh, okay, but then when you go back and look at the earlier studies, is, are, the, are there actual detections of rates that are non-zero in that population, say adult humans? There are. So there's a mixed bag. Some report kind of like the negative report in nature that, you know, maybe they see a cell here or there um, and they don't really quantify it. They just note that it's very low. Um, and uh, maybe some quantify it, uh, you know, one cell in 25,000 or something. And then others do find higher rates. And so then it's a question of methods, you know, so people are, are basically uncertain about with which whose methods are right <laughs> who's doing this right and and i don't know that it creates a bit of a, a tough environment in the field because people are doubting each other's abilities and it's easy it's easy to say well your your methods aren't specific enough or sensitive enough but to some extent this you know there has been some positive developments because this negative report i think is kind of reinvigorated interest in this and you know, there was one recent study in Nature Medicine showing very nicely that if you um, histologically like treat the tissue and, and do things to make these proteins that are only in the immature cells sort of reveal themselves a bit better, you break down the, the bonds of the fixative that are, are preventing antibodies from reaching their targets. When you get rid of those things, the antibodies are better able to find these new cells. And, and you know, the quality of the pictures in this paper are outstanding. You know, there's always this sort of uh, stuff to factor in. You know, you get the numbers, um, and then you look at the pictures, and human tissue never looks that good. This, this, it sat around for two days before it was preserved, and it sat in a, a preservation agent for several days. So, um, you know, things don't look, they're never going to look as good as they do in animals in, in controlled studies. But this one study found, you know, even with well-preserved tissue, they were able to get it to a state where you could um, show these new cells in a way that looked much more like what we see in animals. Now, I still question whether these are recently born cells or not, but they're definitely immature cells and the quality is much better than I've seen anywhere else. So uh, it's, it's, it's been back and forth and methods are like a little contributing to the uncertainty, but it has been working itself out, I think. I'd like to take a step back and sort of underscore something for our, our listeners. When you stain for uh, uh, these markers of immature cells, you're not simply staining human tissue, you're staining preserved human tissue that's been processed. Yeah. And that's going to decrease the efficiency. So can you describe the process that goes through the process of preparation of these uh, tissues and uh, getting a good signal? Uh, of course, the, the, the brain is extracted and, and in a, an ideal situation, um, the brain is always put into something usually called paraformaldehyde, which um, is uh, you know infused into the brain in a liquid form, but it polymerizes and, and links together proteins and carbohydrates and uh, makes the brain stiff, such that with uh, you know basically essentially a fine blade, uh, you can cut the brain into thin sections that can be analyzed, and it may not get into the paraformaldehyde preservative immediately. In the laboratory, of course, it would. There'd be no time between death and preservation. And so everything would be kept in the ideal state. The morphology of the cells, you know, the proteins they express. But if you wait an hour or two hours, six hours, 24 hours, especially with some of these markers that are only in the immature cells, some of these, they, the cells tend to degrade. 
the, the neurons send their you know, processes to other parts of the brain to form connections, and these are the first things that retract and begin to fall apart in the dead brain. And the sooner you can get in the preservative, you can, you can retain that structure and be able to look at something that resembles what you look at in animals and, and know and understand. So 24 hours passes, you may get something that you can detect and might be a newborn cell, but it might, have, uh, it might look different. So anyway, once it's preserved and cut into sections, then that's when you apply these antibodies that have fluorescent tags that then you can um, use to visualize the cells under a, under a microscope. So you mentioned the gold standard method, which is to actually substitute a base for yeah. one that's already in the DNA. And does that have similar uncertainties to what you're describing, or is that method sort of qualitatively different? It is more robust because it doesn't degrade. It's in the nucleus, and so the nucleus is you know, uh, probably one of the last regions of the cell to deteriorate. So you know, it's, 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 I think it's easier to detect and more robust. But this negative report study, they did some, neg some good controls where they uh, removed, uh, the, these brains didn't even have the BRDU, this, this uh, thymidine analog. And when they did the immunohistochemistry, because the brains weren't preserved very well, and because they're old brains too, they could get signals that looked kind of like it. Uh, and so it just pointed out that, you know, we're, you're dealing with a different beast when you're dealing with 60, 70-year-old human brains. Um, you can get a false signal that, if you're not careful, might, might look like a cell, but really it's not. So the BRDU is a better technique, but it's, um, it's not immune to false positives. I, I just happen to know that if you take a cell sample and ship it on just regular ice, um, the DNA is good for at least a couple days, if not more. So, so yeah. if you sacrificed a brain, uh, someone and got their brain out within a day or two, you could definitely probably detect 100% the BRDU substitution. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Not that I don't know how practical that is in reality, but. So Jason, I want to ask a question in a slightly different direction. I want to begin to get at where neurogenesis is occurring, uh, where we have good evidence of occurring, and why it might be occurring there. So can you talk about the places in the brain where you think there's pretty good evidence of neurogenesis, at least in young animals, and the potential purpose might be serving? Yeah. So there, there are scattered reports about neurogenesis happening in, in a number of places. Uh, and and uh, most people focus, you know, you'll I was thinking of actually quantifying this and uh, starting a paper with the statement, <laughs> you know, 42% of studies in their introduction have a statement, something like neurogenesis occurs in two places in the mammalian brain, the subventricular zone and the subgranular zone. And the subventricular zone in mammals gives rise to neurons that, that go to many places, but in adults, they go to the olfactory bone. And the same group that published the negative report in the hippocampus uh, published a report uh, a few years ago saying that in humans there is no neurogenesis going to the olfactory bulb. But in most animals it seems that that's the case. The other reason that's totally agreed upon is the dentate gyrus subregion of the hippocampus. The, the lesser agreed upon areas are the neocortex, which is of course highly evolved in humans, and that's partly why it's so controversial that you'd add new cells there, because it would raise questions about, well, how you know, how can representations be stable when you're adding new cells and this is a seat of higher intelligence and it uh, can't happen. And, uh, but there are reports that's happened there too, but most people have sort of stayed away from, from that. So really it's the, the olfactory bulb in the hippocampus. 
it's, I think, easy to understand why you might expect to find new neurons in the hippocampus. It's probably a seat of at least short-term memory, and presumably uh, adding new neurons increases plasticity. It also increases forgetting, um, as it turns out. What do we know in detail about the effect of new neurons on uh, memory in young animals? Well, the cells, of course, uh, when they're born, they don't have any connections. Um, over the course of about two months, they, they're like children. They, you know, they just soak up everything around them. They're like blank slates, um, in a sense. They go from having no connections to acquiring all these connections with, with incoming fibers. And so they're very plastic. They're better able at forming these connections. They're also more excitable in that they're, uh, they fire action potentials. The main sort of unit of uh, neuronal signaling is sort of occurs more readily in them. And so essentially you have, you know, all of this sensory information coming in from the cortex, information about places and the things in these places, and they need to be bound together into an experience, into holistic kind of memory. And neurogenesis is happening in this area uh, where this, these different types of information converge. And so if they're better able to form connections, it seems plausible that they, sh they should be better at associating um, all of these components of memory into a, into a memory. They're really at this point where everything converges. So when you get rid of them, um, and typically in mice and rats are really the only models where people have looked at this, uh, you see you see deficits in, in various types of memory and all the things that memory is important for. So uh, impairments in maybe in learning about a place uh, in a maze, but maybe also an impairment in once you've learned an escape or some goal, when that changes and you have to learn something else, uh, you may have difficulties in, in extinguishing that old memory and switching to something uh, new, some sort of new goal. So learning about places that are safe versus those that uh, are fearful or where something bad happens, especially when there's some similarity between these two experiences that makes them hard to disambiguate. So that's, that's one of the classic sort of proposed functions of the hippocampus is this balance between um, the precision, the extent to which memories are precise or generalized because um, when you have a precise memory, of course, you can apply it to a specific situation, but if you at the same time, you also need to extract sort of generalities from your memories and and learn how to you know apply something from one situation to something else that is similar. And it seems like neurogenesis. One of the main ideas is that it's important for forming precise memories so that you can distinguish you know one memory from the next, so that you can avoid you know this sort of memory interference. Sorry, I might have missed. Uh, you might have answered this, and I just missed it. There's it evidently a technique by which you can inhibit neurogenesis and then these things where memories are not formed as well, et cetera, that you're describing are consequences of that? Yeah. So uh, classically, you know, before uh, really transgenic mice took the stage, um, we would do this with the radiation. So we'd use radiation to uh, stop dividing cells, just like you would uh, kill dividing cancer cells. So that remains one of the most effective ways for stopping neurogenesis. Of course, radiation can have side effects. So um, people have used uh, antimitotic drugs as well. But more recently, there are transgenic animals where you can basically allow the brain to develop normally and then at a defined time in adulthood, kill the stem cells that produce the new neurons. And you wait some period of time, maybe a month, maybe two months, 
that's about the interval when these cells are very plastic and able to form connections. Um, and so if you wait a couple months, you lose you know, two months of cells that would be in this plastic stage when they're able to, to learn and see. Do these animals have difficulties learning or uh, remembering, retrieving memories? And so that's typically how we you know, test the function of these cells behaviorally. In addition, I guess there are also physiological signals uh, that mark these neurons. So, so they're young, they're more plastic, but what does that mean on a molecular level? Is it that they are more susceptible to long-term potentiation? Do they you know, create axonal connections or dendritic connections more easily? Yeah, so they really, the first discovery was that uh, they have a lower threshold for long-term potentiation. So this idea that uh, when, you know, incoming connections from a neuron, an upstream neuron are active and they're active to a certain extent that may be what happens during, during a, an important experience, um, that will strengthen the connection between those cells and the, the downstream neurons. And, and with that connection strengthened, it makes it easier to essentially, uh, well, that's, that's the basis of forming a memory, the linkage of, different, of two neurons that may store different pieces of information, essentially. And by linking those neurons, you're essentially linking the information and, and creating a sort of memory. So the adult-born cells have a lower threshold for that, that physiological sort of uh, plasticity. But they also have plasticity for extending dendrites. So an experience will cause them to extend their, their processes uh, outwards to form these connections. It will cause them to grow. It will rescue them from cell death. So when the cells are born, they pass through a period of a several weeks when some survive and some die. And if the mouse or rat is in an enriched environment or, under, or learns something during a precise interval in those first few weeks, uh, some of those cells will no longer die, but they'll be rescued and suggesting that they're integrated into the circuit and, and they're, they're needed to, you know, perhaps store that, that memory or that information. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're plastic in that they're um, better able to structurally form these connections and, um, and also functionally process the incoming signals. So I think it's also hypothesized that one of the consequences of neurogenesis is forgetting. And the high levels of neurogenesis in childhood might explain uh, infantile amnesia. So um, can you explain um, infantile amnesia and try to describe the strength of the evidence for linking early neurogenesis to our inability to recall yeah, yeah, yeah. before age three or four? Yeah, so that's really exciting uh, work done by Paul Franklin and Sheena Jocelyn this uh, story of forgetting and it, people have known for years, but I really had an idea why, you know, why do we have all these experiences when we're children and infants that we cannot remember, you know, and it's, it's striking because, you know, if you've got kids and you talk to them when they're three, four and five, you can have a conversation and, and they'll remember something, sometimes from six months earlier, quite a long time ago, but, but then six months later, they have no, re re no recollection of it. And so it's, it's not that they can't remember anything for a long time. They, they can, um, but a lot of this gets erased. Uh, and so why, why is there this amnesia? So what was found was that if you stop neurogenesis, actually the memories become more stable and persist. And so the idea was that you're adding all these new cells into the circuit and you can never really, you can add a new cell and, and add it into the circuit and, and maybe it's able to store new information, but 
you can't add a new cell that can then participate in the circuitry without disrupting something else. I mean, every neuron in the brain is, is connected and the, you know, every, every influence between one set of neurons is influencing uh, other connections and other relationships. So it, it kind of makes sense that if you're adding new cells into the circuit, you might be disrupting the presence of existing you know, uh, memories, for example. And even when you look at how these neurons integrate, they uh, form synaptic connections with downstream neurons, uh, not, not at entirely new sites on the postsynaptic, on the downstream neuron. They tend to connect with uh, existing connections. So there's already a connection between the dentate gyrus, where the neurogenesis happens, and the downstream region, which is called CA3. And there's already a connection there. And the new neuron comes in, and it almost like maybe hijacks that. You can see that anatomically, these new cells come in, and they, um, they begin to take advantage of this existing connection and connect to the, the downstream portion of that existing connection. And um, it seems like over time, it might be the old one sort of gets kicked off, or, or maybe they butt off and they separate, and they're both still persistent. We don't know the answer to this. But it certainly, at an anatomical level, seems plausible that the new neurons are coming in and kind of hijacking the system and maybe taking over to some extent. And so that, that could lead to the turnover of memory. And we actually, because of our interest in, in looking at neurogenesis throughout the lifespan, we started looking not just at neurons born in adulthood, which is when most people are looking these days, we became more interested in like, what are the neurons born in development also doing? Because nobody's studying them as much. And we found that these neurons actually die throughout young uh, adult life, not in huge amounts, but about 15% of, of this large population born when rats were infants, about 15% of these cells um, end up dying throughout young adulthood. And I don't know if it's part of the same forgetting process, um, but it could be related. It could be that the new neurons are coming in and they're learning new things, and they could be actually kicking out the old ones that have older memories that are maybe less relevant or need to be forgotten, um, you know, as, as life circumstances change, uh, we don't know. But this, uh, the idea of forgetting and turnover of memories is certainly one of the more exciting ones. So I think this uh, kind of points to the fact that you've got plus and minuses to most potential biological developments. And people are, were very excited about neurogenesis because it suggested the brain might be more resilient and that, you know, as people get old, uh, that there's still potential for learning and rejuvenation. But, you know, evolution clearly made that process fairly minimal. And it seems like it, if it did so, it may be because there are negative consequences to significant neurogenesis in adulthood. Um, yeah. Has anybody looked at this phenomena in older mice? Is there a way to actually spark neurogenesis later on and maybe see whether that has a negative effect on uh, older animals? It definitely goes down a lot with age. That's, uh, we've established that, and, and people have looked in older animals. Not, not many, as I mentioned, because of just mainly practical limitations and cost. Uh, that's when it's needed the most, possibly. I mean, it, seem, it certainly seems evolutionarily, and like considering the lifespan of the organism, like most important to have it younger. When we're learning about the world, uh, learning about the, you know, the, the world we live in and, 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 and sort of forming the memories that will guide our future behaviors to survive in, you know, in our, in our current, in our environment. And so maybe you need to be more, you know, you, you acquire habits that do become efficient with age, right? You uh, maybe don't need to be as plastic. You've, you've got a behavioral repertoire that works. And uh, if you're a little inflexible, but habit-like, you may, that may be good to, 
uh, have efficient and effective behavior and uh, adaptive behavior throughout the life. Um, Is there a the way to actually spark neurogenesis? In yeah, so I mean, typically, it seems like the most robust method um, approach is, is exercise. And for decades, that's you know, been shown that uh, put a mouse in a running wheel and neurogenesis will approximately double. Now, in an old animal, neurogenesis is so low that doubling is, is still low, but I think that day after day after day of adding new cells, you're adding up something appreciable. You know, a low rate every single day for the latter portion of life um, certainly adds up to something substantial. So, you actually attempt to quantify this in your paper. Uh, yeah. Do you have the figures at your fingertips? Roughly, yeah, yeah. That's a sense of uh, what kind of numbers we may be looking at, given a certain assumed level of... Uh, yeah, the, the human work suggests that about one point, if I remember, it's about like one and a half percent a year is, is added. So, you know, per day, it's a fraction, a fraction of a percent. And that's why people think maybe neurogenesis isn't that important in old age, or that's, that's the argument that has been put forth. But... Obviously, uh, think about 1.5% over the course of a decade, you got 15%, and you know, uh, people are entering old age and, and living in a portion of their life when memory, you know, these types of memory functions are in decline or could be you know, not working so well for, for a few decades, then all of a sudden, three decades times 15% is nearly half of the neurons maybe could be replaced or add, you know, added. So, at any one moment, it's not very much, but if you can exercise and add a bit more, then I think it's, it's obvious that that's a lot of new cells and not a lot of new connections that could, could promote memory, which, uh, enhance behavior, uh, behavioral functions, for example. So the other function of neurogenesis, as I recall from my you know, deep involvement literature about 10 years ago, was in treating depression. It was thought that neurogenesis seemed to protect people against depression. Is that still something that's commonly believed? Yeah. So it was it was a difficult, um, you know, sort of question. I think back back in the day because everybody's so focused on the role of neurogenesis and hippocampus and memory, and it was like why people were wondering why could it be involved also in depression. But I think as people became aware of what. Uh, the hippocampus is doing uh, more broadly beyond just memory or how memory could play a role in the depressive phenotype. I think it's uh, opened up a whole, you know, many new, new doors. Um, but uh, essentially it's, we know that these new neurons buffer the stress response. They, they can, um, you know, help reduce um, anxiety levels in animals, for example. But then depression is also characterized by things like, um, you know, reward deficits as well. And when you look at, for example, the way the hippocampus is involved in um, not just creating representations of the past, memories, but also envisioning creating representations of the future, um, it's sort of like over the years, this, the, the picture of what the hippocampus is doing has broadened. And if it's, if it's needed not just to represent past experiences, but also possible future ones, and, and neurogenesis is important for creating these types of representations, then all of a sudden neurogenesis can potentially play a role in, in much more than just stress and, and anxiety, but also in like decision-making and uh, reward behaviors that are disrupted in depression. So uh, we've sort of started playing with these things and looking at the role of neurogenesis and decision-making um, that's disrupted into depression. And we see, we see important, like new exciting roles for it there too. So 
Um, it's not just for memory, it's, uh, it's everything that memory is involved in. Um, and that's a lot of mental health disorders. What kind of decision making is impaired in depression? So we, um, we, we got interested in this idea of uh, episodic uh, future thinking. Um, and this is work that's not peer reviewed, published, but is um, uh, available in a preprint on, on BioArchive and it's on our website. And, uh, and I think we're pretty excited about the finding, but essentially people have found that uh, hippocampal amnesics can't imagine the future. They, if you ask them what they see in a fictitious scene on the beach, uh, it's just impoverished. They maybe just see blue sky everywhere. They can't fill it with anything. And it's also known that when you have hippocampal damage, you're a little more impulsive and more likely to choose something that might be rewarding immediately rather than something that's more long-term. But by, by envisioning the future, you can shift your decision-making such that you can prefer that sort of more beneficial long-term outcome and, uh, and bias your behavior in that way. So we, we put rats in a, in a task where you pit uh, a, a, an immediate small reward against a larger delayed reward. So these are just sugar pellets. But we found that the, uh, and this is disrupted in, in depression, this sort of tendency to be myopic and, and, and preserve the, uh, sort of uh, prefer the immediate, immediate over the, the reward that's gonna take more time and effort and is gonna occur in the future. Um, and our rats, if you give them the choice, they'll take a single sugar pellet now over a larger one that they have to wait 30 seconds for. So this, uh, we think, we're interpreting this, you know, this traditionally would be very hard to um, explain in terms of uh, memory and what the hippocampus does. But now that we know the hippocampus is important for thinking about the future, we think that maybe these rats that don't have neurogenesis are not able to envision. When I press this lever that's going to give me four sugar pellets, I can't quite picture what's going to happen in 30 seconds. So I'm just going to take the one now. So we, we see these sorts of changes in decision-making when you disrupt neurogenesis. And, and that, that sort of behavior is disrupted in all sorts of disorders. So to me, that's really exciting in terms of thinking about neurogenesis being important for um, all sorts of mental health disorders. I have a question. I hope I'm not derailing Corey's finely tuned outline for this. But uh, since we're on the topic of neurogenesis, do you guys, are you guys familiar with something called the Pitts-McCulloch uh, neural, uh, neuron or neural net? So, so this guy McCulloch, I guess, was an early neuroscientist, I guess. And I once watched a video, an old interview in black and white with him. Probably, you know, it was on, you know, CBS in 1955 or something like this. And he said something very striking to me. I don't know whether it's true. I never know whether to believe these characters. But he claimed that uh, by the time you're an old person, there are gigantic holes, literally holes in your brain where huge regions where the neurons are not working and there might still be tissue there, but it's not actually a functional part of your brain. And he said this very authoritatively on the, in the video that I watched. Um, is it true? Oh dear. <clears throat> Giant holes, like not just like the neuron size holes or, or like, uh, like many neuron size. Like, I don't think, I don't think he gave like really specific dimensions, but he made it sound like, you know, they were macroscopic chunks of brain that were just not functional uh, by the time you got old. And I mean, yeah. You got holes in your head, all through it, where cells have died. You mean literally holes in your head? Sure. Places where there used to be neurons, but there aren't any anymore. How many holes have you got in your head? Oh, I suppose somewhere between 10 and 20% of the cells that I had in my brain are dead and gone. I mean, I, I don't I, know I, how I, he knew this, and, you know, it's my usual problem with neuroscience. I don't know how he knew it. I don't know why he was saying it so authoritatively. I don't know why the interviewer didn't just stop him and say, what are you talking about? 
but uh, it's there. It's on the video. It seems plausible to some extent. I mean, you, you, I, I hear my colleagues talking about microinfarcts, you know, like little, you know, your vasculature gets so fine grained and, and, you know, these little things get clogged. You could get like little like lesions everywhere that are hard to detect with a big brain scan, but, but, you know, uh, but could be there. Could he have known that in 1955 or whenever? No, this I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't look at human tissue that much, you know, so. Yeah, uh, it just seemed like a very, like, uh, Corey and I, are, being old guys, are obsessed with you know decline and aging of our muscles and brains and stuff. And so when I saw this video a few years ago, I was like, oh my god! So there, there are giant holes in my brain that aren't working that used to work, but still I'm able to function barely. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> I mean, certainly with dementia, these sorts of things happen. But in the everyday person, I mean, on the other hand, we all eventually go that direction, <laughs> and it's whether we fall off the cliff or not is another question. But. Yeah, he he might have meant like right near the end, you know, like when you're 70, 80, 90, or who knows, maybe it's not true when you're 50 or something. When do you start losing? At the age of about 16, you can begin to see the holes in the place where the easiest to count. No way to arrest this? Not that I know of. But, um, but I just, I, that stuck in my, it was such a vivid claim, you know, if you just imagine it in your head, like that's what's happening to your brain as you age. I just didn't know whether it was true. So I thought so, well, you guys might be able to tell me. Yeah. You know, I haven't had a similar thought, which is you'll hear people say things like, you know, his body had broken down, but his mind was sharp as ever. And I just think that's just ridiculous. The idea that well, your brain is isolated part of your body and it's going to function like you are when you're 30 when you're seven or 80 and the rest of your body's totally falling apart. I, I think it's like a fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that's usually meant, I, I actually have to say that in my own career in theoretical physics, I've watched some of the people who say when I first knew them, when they were say 40, uh, they were among acknowledged to be, you know, among the smartest people on the planet. And then, and then I got to watch them in seminar rooms for decades, de grappling with really cognitively hard stuff for 20 years. And then, saw the cognitive decline like they're just not as sharp uh at age 65 or 70 as they were when they were 40 or something like so i, I literally have carefully studied this subject at least in limited population pool uh, but i think what's meant by the statement you are referencing is you can have a situation where your body's completely ravaged right your hip is messed up and you can't walk but your brain is still pretty sharp right you you can't do the work Einstein did in 1905, but you are able to process most of what's going on. You're able to read a novel and discuss politics, and then you die. So it's you, you comp comprehend your own death very clearly at the end, and that I think that's what people are kind of well. And I think people are actually being they're being a little more rose colored than that, right? They're actually suggesting the brain just works totally fine. There has been a lot of decline, and I think that may be the impression from the outside, right? I think people. My mother had a stroke about 10 years ago, and you know, and she said to me even though I kind of seem normal on the outside, from the inside, you know that something's very different. I, I think you can definitely have, I mean, for sure there's decline. And, and the reason I kept, the reason I emphasize this seminar room uh, aspect of it is because you're, you're forcing them to try to function at the highest level and you detect that decline. But keep in mind, these same people were teaching graduate class in electrodynamics at the same time, you know, reasonably well. The students were like not complaining. They were able to actually learn the material from this person. So, so the person was functioning at many of these people at well above the normal level, but uh, far below what they were at their peak. Yeah, and this is a function of what people call cognitive reserve, right? These guys had, it, women had such incredibly high 
functioning brains at one point in time. Right. If they lost quite a lot, they're right. still doing very right. well. But I, but I thought, so I, I think you and I may were referring to slightly different aspects of it. So you're saying it's like great that their brain is still awesome, even though their body's messed up. And I was thinking like, isn't it sad that your system is about to break down, but your brain is functioning well enough to you, for you to really fully understand that that's what's happening to you? So I guess I took the half glass full aspect of it. Yeah, this. Um, so you, you, you've walked right into some of Steve and my most intense disagreements here. I'm going to ask you to step right in the middle of a few others. So I think, you know, once you get old, you begin to worry about how to preserve your brain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a few questions along the lines of what is best to maintain uh, basically high-function cognitive ability, assuming that, that neurogenesis might be somehow linked to that phenomenon. So most of the studies in rodents, in fact, I think, nearly all are done on running. I, I, there are swimming experiments, but many of these claims about neurogenesis are done with the running wheel. And the natural assumption without you know, realizing that the studies were only done in one uh, modality is that running has some special connection to neurogenesis. Uh, and I heard early on that humans, it was the one form of exercise that's supposed to spark neurogenesis more effectively than others. I don't think people have compared other types of, uh, enough to say running's better than other things. And I don't see why it would be. I mean, in, as long as I think the key is that uh, you're engaging in some sort of regular intense, uh, you know, uh, aerobic exercise is the idea. And in rodents, it's very effective. In humans, we don't know if it's increasing neurogenesis, but we know that it's increasing blood flow to the hippocampus. And these new neurons are born in a, it's very indirect, the measure, but it's the new neurons are added in a, you know, very vascular rich area. And so it's, it's thought that this, um, you know, increased blood flow is a proxy for, you know, promoting this sort of neurogenic plasticity in humans. Um, and even a little bit of exercise actually can have effects on recruiting the hippocampus and improving memory. So who knows exactly how it's working and exercise does so many things in the brain it's not specific to neurogenesis by any means and we've done experiments to show that you can get improvements in memory um, and then wipe out neurogenesis and those those memory improvements persist so they they don't always depend on neurogenesis either but it's probably one of the best things you can do to preserve your brain and aging <laughs> Corey, are you trying to decide whether to allocate more time to weightlifting and more time to distance running to preserve your brain <laughs> yeah of course because as you get older right you lose muscle mass so you want to spend some time maintaining your muscle mass but you want to maintain your brain if running it's off it's off also a very time efficient activity are you familiar with the the experiments in mice that were done by the physiologist tabata no, because Tabata, he got he was the guy who really started this high intensity exercise. Yeah. Uh, I think say not pejoratively called a craze uh, that Steve and I are both uh, wrapped up in. And what he found is that if you gave mice very intense bouts of exercise, you, the way he did is he took a little mouse and tied a little weight to it and dropped it in water. These things are basically drowning and they have to basically swim their butts off to survive. You do this for uh, 20 seconds, give them 10 seconds off, 20 seconds, so eight times, three times a week. That affect the same uh, effect on muscle mass and uh, endurance as having to swim for an hour normally three times a week. So this high-intense exercise has the same effect. And I'm curious as to whether there may be any evidence, uh, again, I take an answer maybe no from your previous response, for like this kind of very short-term, super-intense yeah. versus longer-term activity as far as memory goes. 
just curious, did, did this person also, did they look at brain function at all? Or is they did all not look at brain function, no. He, he was, it's mainly the, uh, something in the area of sort of exercise physiology, mm -hmm. and it's yeah, made yeah. its way into like human exercise uh, regimens. Yeah. But the biggest compound so. from my perspective would be that it would be very stressful to worry about <laughs> be exercising because you're worrying about drowning. And, uh, and, and stress is one of the biggest inhibitors of neurogenesis. I mean, it, it can also promote neurogenesis under certain circumstances, but if you give, uh, like Elizabeth Gould showed that if you uh, give socially isolated rats a running wheel, uh, running actually decreases neurogenesis because it also increases stress hormones. But that if they run long enough, eventually the, the exerciser overcomes the negative effects of stress. Um, or if they're group housed and they have some sort of social buffering, then they benefit from exercise sooner. So, you know, how to, how to tease apart the, the terrifying aspects of, of worrying about drowning from the intense exercise would be hard, but people are looking at this. I don't pay too much attention to all of these things because everything affects the brain too. So, you know, all the dietary claims and experiences are, yeah, I mean, true in the way these things affect brain structure and function, but the brain is sensitive to everything. So in a sense, it's, it's like, well, what's the long-term benefit of this? Or what does it really do? Like increasing neurogenesis isn't uh, always sufficient. Uh, you know, you want to show that these new cells can be um, integrated into the circuit and be, be used in a way. A rat sitting in its cage doing nothing will add new cells, just like in the, a rat in the wild. At some point, they kind of come to some similar like equilibrium and it's it, uh, both maybe adding the same numbers of cells but the one out in the wild is learning so much that they're actually taking advantage of these and, and using them for some some benefit so i wouldn't i wouldn't doubt that this type of exercise would affect neurogenesis in some way but you know what it exactly means would be I, I guess we're not even sure Corey, that the exercise induced neurogenesis in our brains is better for us in the long run right is there actually evidence for that that's just kind of a convenient leap of yeah, you know, exercise it looks like it's good for memory, right? And neurogenesis seems like it may be good for you know at least mental health. Maybe uh, better than the alternative, exactly. But yeah, yeah. the no, the causal <laughs> link hasn't been established. That's right. Um, so you you just also signaled uh, maybe your lack of interest or in my next question. <laughs> so you know the hype is kind of hard to avoid, and I think neurogenesis caught the attention of the public partly because it seemed like a way of staving a cognitive decline. But one of the things that people often link to brain health and cognitive decline is diet. And so here's something I, when I Googled neurogenesis and brain health, uh, I got taken to a webpage that made the following claims that included a claim that Steve appears to believe. Now, the claims included a diet high in unhealthy or bad fats slows down neurogenesis, but a diet high in healthier good omega-3s increases neurogenesis to a higher level. Green teas, polyphenols have been shown to decrease BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which appears to be the main signal. It turns on neurogenesis. They talked about uh, blueberries being healthy for neurogenesis. Uh, Steve eats lots of blueberries every day. And uh, curcumin has a strong neurogenic effect. You signal that you pay no attention to this, probably for good reason. But I just want to, does any of these claims, do any of these claims ring true for you? Is anything you know might bear on their truth, including I'm not going to make any recommendations for the public to start. <laughs> how about Steve's? How about Steve's blueberry habit? <laughs> Sprinkle some cumin on your blueberries, and, uh, and and actually, there's another study showing that chewing increases neurogenesis. So you should 
probably put it in the freezer and eat frozen blueberries that have cumin on them. And then you'll be like a superhuman. The first approximation, we've said this before on the podcast, because this is a recurring theme. To me, nutrition is because of the difficulty in obtaining decisive evidence and also the fact that we're all genetically different from each other. You know, nutrition is a lot like uh, religion. You just believe what you believe and, and that's it. It's faith-based. I've been eating blueberries almost every day for over 20 years and largely because one of my colleagues uh, at the University of Oregon, who's a theoretical chemist, uh, had studied the literature very carefully uh, for things that aid your brain against cognitive decline. And he had concluded the only two things that he found the studies decisive for were fish oil and blueberries. And I just took his word for it because I figured it wasn't, wasn't going to do any harm. And I like blueberries. Yeah. Let's say it's not going to do any harm, but would, and you wouldn't only eat those two things either. Uh, yeah, I, I eat other things. So we're good. Uh, yeah. So I mean, my my feeling is like, just just eat what you grandmother would have told you is probably healthy food, and uh, and don't worry about it too much. Uh, it'd be nice to know if things can boost neurogenesis for when we really need it. When in aging, if there is. You know, in Alzheimer's, the first region to go downhill is the hippocampus and the, the area that projects to it. So, you know, there might be a case for identifying things that can boost neurogenesis at that point. Like, we really need to do all we can. But, you know, I feel like now you're going to do one thing. It's going to come at the, you're eating all one thing. It's going to come at the expense of something else. And we just don't know how all these things interact at this point. Mike, my. my guess from your comments is that maybe this isn't a particular area of interest for you, but there are people that I think are intellectually pretty careful who have looked carefully at the literature and say, for example, are only impressed by very large scale random control, RCTs, randomized uh, controlled trials. And so I haven't done that work of looking through literature, but I have had people tell me who I think are careful thinkers that there is you know, a significant amount of evidence in favor of hypothesis acts like you know fish oil or something like this you know I, I don't know maybe the state of the science is that you just can't with high confidence conclude anything about nutrition but uh there are definitely people who believe otherwise i've read a few systematic reviews that suggest that there is evidence that fish oil is good for cardiovascular health right it seems like one of the strongest i'd like to hear your views on what are the important questions going forward and where do you see yourself concentrating your laboratories yeah precious time and energy. So, I, I mean, I think this, this negative report in humans, which stemmed this, you know, it, it inspired this, uh, like, lit review on, on neurogenesis throughout the lifespan, um, sort of just made me really think about um, not just focusing all my research on new cells born in the adult, but really trying to understand how this relates to neurons born in development and at all stages of the lifespan. You know, we go through all sorts of experiences from childhood to adolescence through adulthood. At all of these stages, you're gonna have new cells added in this region involved in memory that are probably gonna be tuned to learn, you know, they're gonna be, they're gonna learn about all these experiences at important stages of life. And, you know, for the most part, most neurons do stick around for the lifespan. So what they learn is gonna shape uh, behavior later, you know, uh, years later. So I think that's one of my main interests is seeing how are the neurons born in development different from those born in adulthood and those in aging. And, and this is, you know, or we have some intriguing evidence that this is important because, 
you know, if neurogenesis declines a lot in all animals, well, the question becomes, well, maybe day by day this adds up like we discussed and, and becomes something meaningful. But if we've never studied them when they become older beyond this sort of critical period of heightened plasticity, you know, what are they doing when they're older? Do they become silent, non-functional? Or are they less relevant? And, and what we found is that even well beyond their supposed critical period, they continue to grow and develop and add plasticity to the circuit. And to me, this is exciting because it, it suggests that, well, even if neurogenesis declines earlier in humans, it may suggest that, you know, even, even neurons born way earlier, you know, even in childhood, may still be developing throughout the lifespan and may give a plasticity throughout the life that is akin to the neurogenesis that we may observe, you know, in, in young rodents or something. It may be doing a similar function. So I think it's trying to be a little more holistic about um, understanding how experiences that are early in life or later in life are shaping, you know, behavior because, you know, the way we behave as adults is the sum not just of what happened five minutes ago or, or the day before, you know, learning where did I park my car, but it, it's also like, you know, was I assaulted when I was eight, you know, and what effect did that have on my, my global disposition and, 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 and behavior for the lifespan? I think understanding these experiences at different stages of life will be important for kind of a better big picture look at how memories accumulate. Coming back to the very beginning of the episode, how do you think the field will process and react to this prominent paper, UCSF paper in Nature? I mean, will it stimulate more careful studies to try to establish the rate of uh, neurogenesis in adult uh, humans? I hope so. I mean, that's what it's doing for me. I, it, it, I still believe neurogenesis is really interesting and important, but it, it really, to me, focused on the fact that we don't know what's happening in development, we don't know what's happening in aging, and we can't know who we are if we don't don't know about these other aspects of our, our lives. So, but but at the same time, it's a little. Uh, I kind of feel like there's been so much pushback that uh, people are almost ignoring it. <laughs> I see people are not swayed. It didn't really move people's. It kind of didn't move people, and um, and I, I, don't, I don't think how this could be published. And sure, they may have missed something a little bit, but it's not like they're totally off base. Maybe they failed to detect some neurogenesis that could be meaningful. But, you know, they raised some important points. And, I, and, and we're almost like swaying back. It used to be there's no neurogenesis. Now it's like there's neurogenesis at the cost of everything. And, and you're wrong if you believe otherwise. And, and I don't think this binary, it's not one or the other. I think there's some truth to both. And uh and, and so for me, it's become more exciting because I think it's identified areas of research, but I hope it has for others too. It, it seems like in, at least say in a mouse model and using sort of the gold-plated method, DNA method, you should be able to estimate the rate at which neurogenesis declines with age in that mouse at least. And that, I'm surprised people don't know that already. They, ha they have done that. They just don't, people just don't pay much attention to it and think about it in the context of our full lifespan and does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jason. This has really been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, it's been a, been a great time. Thanks a lot.